Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the UK has announced it has approved a COVID-19 vaccination to go into citizens' arms. Where is Canada's? The federal government will soon force vendors like Netflix and Amazon to pay taxes. What does that mean for you and me? We have heard of Canada's vaccination deal with China that fell through, but do we know the reasons why and why is China treating us this way? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son, kicking off December with a snowstorm. Now that's more like normal. Bring it on, that Anna Kilman. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! I don't even know what he said, but he's found the groove. Hey, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers, come back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. All right, lots of information today coming out of the UK in regard to uh, they've uh, got a vaccination and it uh, has uh, reached approval, which means it could be in the arms of those in the UK uh, in the next week or so. Uh, they have become the first Western country to license a vaccine against COVID-19, opening the way for mass immunization. This is with the Pfizer vaccine. To talk more about all of this, Crystal Gamansing is with us, Global News Europe Bureau Chief and on the line now. Crystal, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Hi there. Yes, I am. Thanks for asking. So, Crystal, what's been the reaction to this in the United in the United Kingdom? Uh, in contrast to what we're experiencing here, where we're on pins and needles waiting to even get some answers, what's the reaction like been in the UK? Well, there's a there's a lot of excitement. To be honest, you know, we're looking at another day where we had more than sixteen thousand infections, more than six hundred deaths in the last twenty four hours related to COVID nineteen. So, a lot of people talking about the potential for this vaccine. When will it uh, start to uh, roll out to the largest number of people, and how soon will we be able to sort of get back to that that standard of of what we once knew was normal? So, a lot of people. Uh, sort of wondering what the process is now. And what we're hearing from officials, from politicians and from uh, regulatory uh, leaders in in the medical community is that um, the vaccine has been, um, you know, widely examined and scrutinized. They feel it's safe. And we'll start to see um, the initial rollout happening early next week. And so uh, do we know any more information as far as numbers, who will get it first, uh, or, or what that distribution plan is? Yeah, so this is what we know so far. So we know that um, Pfizer-BioNTech had approved to the U- had applied to the UK for emergency use approvals, and that approval did uh, go through. And now we are going to be getting the the first shipment um, of this vaccine uh, within the next 24 to 48 hours. That, according to BioNTech's chief commercial officer, we know that not only is it generally tested, but every batch is also tested. Uh, British Health Secretary Matt Hancock 
Wilcox said this morning in the House of Commons that um, the batch testing had gone through and was completed this morning on 800,000 vaccines. So those will be shipped out as soon as possible. And then it begins sort of the next phase of this, because, of course, it is a very sensitive vaccine. It has to be kept in incredibly cold temperatures. So now the process is, where does it go? How do you keep it as cold as possible? And then start rolling it out. So we know that the first um, sort of vaccination, I'll use the word clinic, uh, for a lack of a better term, those will be happening at the NHS, the National Health Service, and they'll start sort of because they have the most infrastructure, and then we'll see it roll out from there over the, the coming weeks and months. So I'm guessing uh, long-term care, uh, older seniors' homes and such, and frontline workers first, has that been discussed? Yeah, priority has been talked about, and, and the, the, the path for, for the UK has been um, the, the most at risk. Those people who are most at risk of dying because of COVID-19, they are at the top of the list. So we're talking about um, the elderly in, in long-term care facilities, those who uh, work closely with them, but also those you know uh, doing jobs most at risk. So anybody in that upper group that's most at risk of dying from the infection, that will be the group that will be vaccinated first. Any word on when the general public will get in line? It really depends on on age group, right? Because you could have someone who is, you know, necessarily younger, but, you know, at a greater risk. So they would move into a different category. The bulk of the population, we're being told from government officials, probably won't be vaccinated until the new year. And at that point, which vaccine will be used is is a question as well, because, you know, there's also the vaccine that is, is close to approvals, the, the Oxford University vaccine. So there could be at some point multiple vaccines uh, going that can be used in people. And then the key will also be tracking, because you have to, for it to be effective, you have to get the same vaccine, right? You can't take, you know, shot number one of Pfizer and shot number two of vaccine X. So there will be there will be some logistical work that will uh, be necessary. And we did hear from Matt Hancock saying this is going to be a massive uh, undertaking and one that we've never seen before. Uh, we have heard that one of the good things to come out of this pandemic is the way that these things are being researched, developed, and then approved in the sense that uh, instead of waiting for all of the information and then bang, plopping on the desk of officials, this is coming out gradually or has been coming out to keep everybody up to speed. And pretty much everybody's getting the same, uh, all authoritative bodies are getting uh, the same information at roughly the same time. Has there been any concerns about safety that this has been rushed? I mean, we are hearing that here. Not sure if that's past, uh, part of the discussion about actually getting it or 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 whether that's you know Canada's taking an extra an extra round to to make sure that it is safe has there been any concerns around safety of this there's been lots of questions obviously we have never had a vaccine produced researched and put to market this quickly it is new territory However, you talked about how, you know, the information was being shared. The term that's used is is a rolling review. Uh, we did hear from a number of officials with the regulatory body, that is Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. The executive director is Dr. June Rain, and she really tried to address it. So we heard from a number of officials who really drilled down on that safety point, which was, 
that there was no stone left unturned here, that that the public should have absolute confidence that every rigorous check has been done and that it is their best judgment that the benefits of this vaccine uh, far outweigh any risk. And that's a direct quote there, far outweighs any risk. Um, They say that it has been independently scrutinized, that they have gone through all the research. And because, like you said, it wasn't, you know, they didn't go through this entire project and then hand over the information. Information was being shared sort of on a continuous basis so that they could do these sort of checks as they were going along. So it does change things. Um, There was a lot of people asking questions at this point, this is what these agencies are for. They, we have a, these agencies all around the world. Canada has its own. The UK has its, um, you know, and everyone is going to make these decisions at their own time and pace based on their own criteria. The UK decided to go ahead. We know that we heard from Germany's health minister saying, you know, they're they're taking an extra couple of steps. So it all depends on the regulatory regulatory body. And in this case, in the UK, they felt that they had met the criteria. They had determined that it was safe and effective, and that it should go ahead. Uh, last question, and you touched on this. What about the rest of the European Union? Yeah, so the um, the EU is is also working on this, as is every country. Um, the EU is sort of working on more of a uh, a block situation, which normally they would. The UK is sort of separated. Of course, we know that the transition period is almost over. The end of the, this year will be when it's you know officially done, and and um, you know the the separation will have taken effect uh, fully and completely. So it's doing its own thing, as is you know the the government in Canada versus the government in the United States. It all depends on location, and I think it's important to note just because one location, one country has approved it, it does not guarantee approval in another country. Um, everyone is going to do this at their own pace. But again, we have been told time and time again by numerous officials that um, just because it happened quickly does not mean that uh, the regular checks were not uh, were not made. Crystal Gamansing with us, Global News Europe Bureau Chief, uh, the UK becoming the first Western country to license a vaccine against COVID-19. Crystal, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're very welcome. Thanks so much. Uh, a, a new poll out by uh, Morrow Blue is saying that 57% of Canadians believe the government is doing a good enough job on getting a vaccine compared with 40%, 43% who said that they uh, do not believe that. And as much as 60% saying that uh, we're making this up as we kind of go along. Uh, to talk about what is going on in the world of Canadian politics, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times and former speechwriter Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Hope you're well too, Scott. Uh, obviously, we uh, we still don't know what is going on. The prime minister setting off a firestorm uh, last week when he said, yeah, uh, we're not going to get it in front uh, with everybody else in the advanced world. We'll be uh, a little bit behind them because we don't make it anymore. Uh, again, that has uh, set off a narrative, which is he's unbena- been unable to turn around uh, at this point. Now the news that the UK is well on their way. What are your thoughts on 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 the questions that still remain here in Canada? Well, I'm sure that people in the UK are very happy to hear that Pfizer will be coming in under the emergency measures, which means that they'll be able to get the vaccine much earlier than I think they expected. Again, I think most of Europe assume, because their productivity levels for vaccination is pretty high and pretty well established, I think a lot of them figured that by early 2021, they would, you know, not everyone would have it, but a large chunk of society would. 
for them, I think this is actually very welcome news. You know, naturally for Canada, although obviously when we say we're at the back of the line or back of the bus, that's not completely true. We are much further behind due to the fact that for decades, not years, as this current Liberal government likes to point out and point fingers at my old friend and boss Stephen Harper, which is not accurate, but for decades, vaccination productivity in Canada has dwindled quite a bit. It was privatized many years ago, which worked to some degree, but then unfortunately the mechanisms, I'm sure you've discussed a few times, has broken down quite considerably to the point that, well, right now we are in a position that Certain countries like Mexico will probably get COVID-19 vaccines earlier than we will. And that could include Pfizer. That could include Moderna. If AstraZeneca makes its way here, although I think it's going to mostly be in Europe, that would be another option. And whatever else is sort of in the pipeline. Um, It's problematic. And no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, or if you're even in the political aisle somewhere or on it somewhere, on the spectrum somewhere, I think it's very frustrating to look at this, especially because Canada has worked very hard to contain COVID-19. Many of the measures that we have in place, we know the laundry list, you know, from social distancing, wearing masks, washing our hands, etc. And keeping, obviously, a distance from family, friends and other loved ones for health and safety reasons. That's all worked to our advantage. But unfortunately, the very last step and the most important step, which is ensuring that All Canadians who are willing to take the vaccine, and I think the vast majority will, there'll be some who won't, but, you know, that is what it is. But the vast majority, you know, want access to the vaccines as early as possible. And based on what we're hearing from the federal government right now, it's going to be quite late. Well, you know, again, at the end of the day, even if it is going to be late, should we, should they not at least tell us that? I mean, at the end of the day, everybody just wants to know when we're going to get it. Is the answer, we don't know, or is the answer, they're not telling us? Because somewhere there must be a contract that states, you know, here are the conditions after it is approved, however many days, or when this people get that, you know, when the home country gets this many vaccines or whatever, then you can get it. Is there not a set of rules somewhere that 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 details and explains how this is going to work? Well, I can't but, speak with confidence because I haven't actually looked at the contracts. Uh, we do know that contracts exist in terms of the number of vials of vaccine that they plan to order from the various companies. And again, would not would not would there not be though a mention of the delivery date in those contracts or the conditions for a delivery date? You know, I don't like to speak out of turn. I presume there must be something there, but but do I know for sure? No, unless I actually see the contract, Scott, I can't say. But I'd be surprised if Canada at least didn't have some sort of a window, even if it was a window of two to three months where everything would come in. But basically, the way they're talking right now, and they've obviously not shown the contracts of the Canadian public, or at least it's not available for public consumption right now, we don't know. Are we just to assume that then as a result, they don't know? And what do you think the chances are of, you know, under-promising, over-performing here? Coming in at the end and going, oh, no, we've got all these. Well, I mean, I think they probably had a window that was discussed. Maybe it's not in the formal contract, but I think something was probably discussed back and forth between Canada and the various drug companies because many of our provincial premiers have had conversations with some of these drug companies, Doug Ford in Ontario, for example, and we know for a fact 
pardon me, that if Canada has ordered all these millions of vials, then clearly they had discussions as well, even before a formal contract was agreed upon, signed, etc. Um, so that part of it's hard to say. But in terms of the um, overselling, underperforming, I think that's a very fair analysis that you've made, Scott. I, I don't disagree with that. Obviously, Canada, like all other countries around the world, had to order the vaccine so that their society becomes protected and that we can eventually get past the most important hurdle or the most difficult stage. And then as the years go along, probably still be at least another couple of years, we'd probably have to continue to do mask wearing for safety reasons. And herd immunity would be fully achieved uh, two to three years after that effect. So all that's fine. But it's one thing to write a contract or create a contract and sign a contract to bring in the vaccines. It's quite another thing to ensure that it's delivered at a particular time and on a particular date. And again, like I said, I don't think Canada's going to be very last in the list. I know that obviously that's being bandied about. But certainly, when you see other countries gaining access to the vaccines much earlier than us, obviously the U.S. is one of them because they've created two of them. The U.K. is another. And others are starting to move forward. We even know that Mexico has a seems to have, at least based on news reports, a better deal than we do, um, we're going to be further back. And while that isn't necessarily the end of the world, and the access to vaccines will hopefully dribble down to some extent to some of our hospitals in case people go in from a certain period of time, let's say this month, and get sick, at least there'll be some access for people who are in terrible shape to prevent them from being on ventilators and other things. You hope so anyway. Other than that, though, the general populace may have to wait for quite a long time, and that's going to frustrate a lot of Canadians, no matter where they stand in the political spectrum, no matter what they think about the way the governments have been handling COVID-19 in general. And that's, fr- that's, off- that's really unfortunate. Uh, you reminded me of something that was said in the Premier's press conference yesterday, and that, and that was that he was talking to, or the, the, I guess he wasn't there yesterday, uh, Christine Elliott was, um, yeah. that he was, or that they were going to be talking to Pfizer. So what does that say when the provinces are sort of end-running the government and they're talking to Pfizer? What are they going to find out the feds didn't, or vice versa? Well, that's a good question. Look, there are, the Ontario government is obviously furious because, as we know, there was mixed messaging between the federal government and the provincial government in terms of when vaccines or the vaccines were going to eventually arrive in Canada. Uh, the Ontario government, forgive me if I'm incorrect, I'm not sitting in front of it, said about early March we were going to have several million, somewhere in the neighborhood between three to six million vials, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And the federal government came back and basically directly said, well, no, that's not accurate. So I think based on the frustration between the mixed messaging between the provincial government and the federal government, Premier Doug Ford, Christine Elliott, and others have decided to approach the drug companies directly. As to what they'll find out, <laughs> good question. I mean, obviously, we're not privy to their meetings, so we don't know. And unless they announce it at one of these press conferences, with which I have no idea, I'm sure you have no idea, and probably most people don't, uh, we may never know exactly. But that's up to them to decide. Uh, we've only got uh, about 30 seconds or a minute left. What are you expecting to happen between now and Christmas? Uh, in terms of uh, ability to get vaccines or production? Well, just even any of the information coming out. Will we know any more information before the new year? Good question. Um, let's put it this way. Based on the fact that Doug Ford and Justin Trudeau have tried to be not necessarily buddy-buddy, but have a good, solid working relationship, 
And we know that Doug Ford is obviously friendly with Christia Freeland, the federal finance minister, and they get along very well. My guess is nothing will leak out. But, you know, if something interesting happens or there's some sort of dissension between the provincial and federal ranks, don't be shocked if something comes out, you know, from an unknown source, which is unfortunately what typically happens. But, but really, my own thought, my guess is no. I think that we probably won't find out anything, if at all, until the new year. That's going to be fascinating, especially if we see other parts of the world starting to vaccinate and we still don't, uh, we still have a big question mark. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Have a great afternoon. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, obviously, we've known for some time that uh, Hamilton has uh, is picking up steam when it comes to not only development in the uh, city, but also uh, in the entertainment industry and film studios and uh, or filming projects coming here and such. Well, now a group has announced a studio for uh, Hamilton that will be open for business uh, by February of next year. To talk more about all of this, Norm Sheelan is with us, Director of Economic Development for the City of Hamilton, and is with us now. Norm, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. All's, all's well here, Scott, at my home office, too. So. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. So how has COVID-19 in this global pandemic slowed development in the city, or has it? How has it affected development? Okay, so I want to be quite clear here, Scott. The the pandemic has certainly affected uh, Hamilton in uh, in two different ways. I, I guess certainly from the main street side, our our accommodation, our tourism, our, our on street retail, personal services. Uh, I mean, they've they've been devastated with what's going on uh, with with the with the uh, lockdowns and the uh, uh, and the restrictions that have been placed upon them. But uh, in a in a one eighty degree twist. Uh, if you take a look at what's happening from the development perspective in the city, it is um, going off the charts right now. Um, there, there's around two and a half million square feet of non-residential development, like industrial buildings that are being constructed right now uh, in the city. Uh, and that I've been with the city for over 30 years, and I've never seen development at this at this rate. Uh, I, I'm calling it a bit of a pandemic uh, surprise in terms of, you, you know, what I don't think anyone really expected I mean, we, we've seen momentum uh, coming this way, but the momentum has persisted and it looks like it's uh, moving forward uh, into next year as well. Uh, so that is some good news coming out, out of this uh, from a development perspective. And you mentioned the studio and, uh, and you know, there's another uh, another another development uh, that um, uh, I'd like to talk about being Sierra, Sierra, uh, Sierra Supply Chain Services. They just broken ground on $80 million cold storage facility up in the Red Hill Business Park. Uh, it's, it's a great story. Uh, Penta Properties, uh, who, who's a landlord up there, um, has had uh, Sierra as a tenant uh, up there for the last, uh, I think, since 2013. And, and now they've decided to put an additional 150,000 square feet onto their development. A huge investment into the community, 100 new jobs, and uh, they just broken ground uh, just this past week. So that's just one of the latest ones that's taken place. How do you explain the, the this all happening during a pandemic? I remember during the beginning, uh, construction had slowed down, but then once we figured out how to do it, it sped up again. And it does seem that there's a lot of uh, businesses out there that are perhaps using this time to expand, either because maybe uh, there aren't the people around and it's a good time to do it, or they're looking at the future. But it, it does seem to have spawned a lot of development. It has, but Scott, you have to realize too that a lot of this stuff has been in the pipe for a while. A company yeah. just doesn't decide yeah. over we're going to, you know, we're going to put put something in the ground tomorrow. So mm-hmm. I think companies are looking for the longer term, especially from uh, you know the the, the 
larger industrial players and uh, manufacturers. They're looking long, long, long down the road. And, um, and, and I think that's what you're seeing. That, 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 and the surprise, I guess, to me is that, you know, with, with all the projects that we had coming down the pipe, I don't believe that any of them, some were delayed, certainly. Uh, but most of them, all of them, all of them proceeded. So it's, uh, I mean, we've seen Amazon and they're in the fulfillment center up at, at the airport, uh, uh, DHL in the facility at the airport, uh, L3 Harris up in, in, in Waterdown continues to, to, to move, move ahead. Um, I mean, there's, and, and they're happening across all sectors. So, you know, from, you know, uh, and most, most of these employers are, are paying a very good wage as well, living wage jobs. So, so that's, that's, that's great for the economy and great for the people in the city right now. I remember Mayor Fred uh, saying way back when that, you know, you, you've got to have uh, prosperity coming in from all corners in order to make a successful city, and that being residential uh, and development. We're certainly seeing and have seen, again, long before COVID-19, uh, people leaving the greater Toronto Harry area and moving into uh, the Hamilton area with more and more uh, uh, simply just starting housing here or buying housing here. Does that affect uh, business development at all oh certainly in terms of uh uh with housing in terms of well the residential if you take a look at the residential construction they're probably one of our largest uh, employers in the city as well when you take a look at uh, all the folks that, that they employ and the economic impact they have on the city and and uh, you know that we talk a lot about the you know the, the large manufacturers and then everything else but residential has a huge economic impact on the city as well um i i believe that uh what we're seeing through the pandemic as well, you're seeing people that are looking at uh, not wanting to be in as a densely populated area. Um, and, you know, I think uh, some of the real estate stats that we've seen over the last few months will bear to prove that people are have been moving this way. Uh, they've been moving this way for a long time, but that continued through the pandemic. I think people are looking for places that they have a little bit of a backyard, a little more space. And quite frankly, I think some of the folks that have been really living in some of those you know, denser populated areas uh, within the province, um, they're looking at, uh, you know, if, if now telecommuting is an option and whatnot, hey, you know what, what why don't we move out uh, somewhere that uh, offers us a little more space and isn't quite as, as densely populated. Norm Sheelan has been with us, Director of Economic Development for the City of Hamilton. Despite a global pandemic, uh, development still strong in the city. Norm, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. Take care. All right, let's move on. Uh, We've talked a lot about uh, Netflix and streaming services, especially in the midst of a uh, global pandemic. And the chatter has been for an awful long time, probably since the Internet was invented, uh, about regulation and taxes or charging, uh, you know, certainly monetizing this service. And at what point do they owe governments and and are they avoiding such taxes? Uh, Let's bring in Jasmine Moulton, a taxpayer. Payers Federation and is with us now and uh, this on the uh, heels of news that uh, the feds are going to uh, get tough with these uh, with these uh, various uh, developers and, and and organizations like Netflix Amazon and such Jasmine thanks for the time I hope you're doing well sure so Jasmine uh, again we've been talking about this for an awful long time why do you think this is happening now Well, I think that the government is broke and they're grasping at any straw they can to increase revenue. As I've said for uh, a long time now, the government does not have a revenue problem. It has a spending problem. If we look at uh, the federal fiscal update, which just came out this week, we see that this year alone, Trudeau plans to spend 
$641 billion, which <laughs> divided by 365 days a year, means he's spending $1.8 billion every single day. Uh, so he's grasping at any straw he can to put more money in the government's pockets instead of doing what he needs to do, which is reduce his own, uh, a lot of it's very wasteful spending. And uh, in terms of the Netflix, ta- Netflix tax that we'll be talking about today, uh, you know, he says that that's going to target digital giants, which, you know, who could oppose <laughs> digital giants paying off our, our debt bill. But in reality, this is going to target uh, everyday Canadians because it's a sales tax. So this is not going to be paid by the digital giants, quote unquote. It will be paid by everyday struggling families. Wow. So uh, that certainly does change the discussion. Your thoughts on this? Obviously, uh, your feeling or the Canadian Taxpayers Federation feeling that, that you know, this is, uh, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, that this is a revenue grab. It's it's directed at the wrong people. Well, absolutely. So we're, we're actually talking about two different taxes here. One will be introduced next year. One will be probably introduced in 2022. So the first tax that they're going to introduce on these quote-unquote digital giants is a GST or HST, depending on what uh, province you live in. So that's money that will be paid directly by you and I, not by, I mean, anyone who knows anything about business, you pass on your sales tax to the consumer. That's completely paid by the consumer, not by the business whatsoever. In 2022, uh, they want to introduce a corporate tax on what they call big tech. But uh, again, it's customers who pay that. Uh, businesses aren't going to take a hit to their profitability uh, just because there's a new tax slapped on them. It's it's really not them who pays it at the end of the day. They'll raise their prices. And again, this will just translate into more money out of the pockets of taxpayers uh, into the uh, pockets of government. And really, at a time when we're struggling through the biggest economic downturn on record. Millions of Canadians have lost their jobs and are struggling financially right now. Uh, right now, Trudeau said that he wouldn't raise taxes. And we're seeing not only, you know, he promised he wouldn't raise a Netflix tax. We see that that's coming through. He raised the carbon tax on April 1st. Payroll taxes are going up in the new year. Uh, alcohol taxes are going up as well. All at the same time that, you know, MPs took a raise this year. So, uh, really, the rhetoric from this government is all about the middle class. But what we see is they give themselves a pay raise while they increase taxes on everybody else. But Jasmine, how do you tax the business without having that passed on to the consumer? I mean, at the end of the day, no matter which way you tax the business, if their expenses go up, will that not just be passed on? And what can you do here? Well, when the government says that, so the line that they're using is that they're trying to level the playing field here. But uh, like I've said, this has nothing to do with leveling the playing field. This is about one thing and one thing only, more revenue for a government with a spending problem. So when the government says that they have to raise taxes to level the playing field for Canadian businesses, there's an implicit acknowledgement in that statement that taxes on Canadian businesses make them less competitive, uh, which I agree with. But I think that the solution here instead is to reduce taxes on Canadian businesses. Not only would that help to make them more competitive, not only here at home, but globally. And it would also help to ease the tax burden off their shoulders as they struggle to get back on their feet. But instead of lowering taxes on business that would help businesses right here at home and help consumers uh, through lower costs, 
Um, the government has instead decided to put money in its own pockets, which is hardly surprising. Um, so again, the solution here is to lower taxes on Canadian businesses, which will, you know, save consumers ultimately uh, that money. But instead, we see Trudeau continuing to spend, uh, you know, crazy, crazy amounts just flooding out of Ottawa with very little oversight. Um, and now he's just trying to raise taxes. But again, uh, when we look at how much money this will bring in, so the Netflix tax, for example, the tax on digital products and services, is supposed to bring in $1.2 billion over five years. But again, Trudeau's spending $1.8 billion a day. So mm. he's going to raise that, uh, you know, as much money off of this tax in five years. Um, and he spends more than that in one day. He'll burn through that in a day. So really the solution here, you can only, you know, tax people so much. Taxes are already the largest expense out of the average Canadian family's pocket. Last year, Canadian families paid on average 45% of their total income to various levels of government in taxation. So enough is enough. They've taken enough from taxpayers and we're struggling right now. It's time for them to reduce their wasteful spending. Jasmine Moulton has been with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, uh, talking about new taxes on Netflix and Amazon. But will that just end up costing uh, costing you and I more? Jasmine, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in David Aiken, chief political correspondent from Global News, see if he can uh, shed some light on the vaccination situation, a controversial uh, decision to give the federal government's procurement department the power to sole source contracts worth up to $5 million uh, was and remains a core element of the bold, aggressive action that uh, the procurement minister has uh, was encouraged to take earlier this spring as part of the reaction to this pandemic. Let's bring in uh, David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent for Global News. Dave, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Doing well enough. Yeah, we don't have the nice weather you get. We got we got snow. The snow's hit us today. I hear you. I hear you. So uh, let's start with the newest information, which is the fact that uh, the UK has said that uh, they are approving this uh, the Pfizer vaccine and that they will be the first to get it into arms. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, you're going to hear about this at 2.15 in the House of Commons here because... Uh, you know, just after Doug Ford finishes his presser, uh, Justin Trudeau faces the opposition in question period, and Trudeau's going to be there. And absolutely, this is going to be the top of the charts for uh, the Conservatives, for the Democrats, the Bloc Québécois. They've been hammering away on this for some days now, that um, other countries will be ahead of us in line. But I think it's important to point out, we're not in the back of the line, but mm-hmm. no, we're not in the front of the line. It looks like, you know, the U.K. is, quote, in the front of the line, just because they, they got the regulator done uh uh, got the work done, obviously, earlier than others. So in the way it works for us, for the Pfizer vaccine, that's the one that's now been approved for use, emergency use in the U.K., and that's the one likely to be approved first at the same time by both the United States Federal Drug Administration, the FDA, and by Health Canada. And you're right when you mentioned at the top, we're getting data on these trials in real time. Normally, the procedure for any new drug or vaccine You know, a company would go through all their tests and then they give Health Canada, you know, binders and binders of um, of lab info. Uh, And that would take months for them to go through. In this case, this is the new procedure is literally there's a pipeline right to the Pfizer labs and both Health Canada and the FDA have been getting the same information. So they'll be able to make decisions roughly at the same time. We know the FDA is meeting on December the 11th. And so put that in your calendar. 
approvals are one thing. The next thing is, do we have some of these vaccines? The Pfizer one, you've probably been talking about this. It, you need minus 70 degrees Celsius. You've got to store it at minus 70. And once you thaw it out, you've only got about a day to get it in somebody's arm. It takes, it's a very sophisticated vaccine in terms of uh, it needs people to be properly trained on how to administer it. Uh, it needs special facilities, special kinds of freezers to store it. Um, I've talked to some experts in the United States, some doctors, and they say even hospitals in big cities in the States don't have the facilities and the expertise to deliver this vaccine. So when we do start rolling out the Pfizer one, we're going to need special facilities. And almost certainly that is what Rick Hillier has been brought in to do for the Ontario government. It's what a top general here in, in Ottawa has been brought in to do across the country, is to figure out a very complicated logistics and training problem to get this vaccine where it's going to go. We're going to get 3 million doses of two vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna. Moderna should be approved shortly after Pfizer. They're both roughly similar. They both need to be chilled. Moderna not, not as chilled as Pfizer. But we're going to get three mil- sorry, we're going to get 6 million doses. But remember, everybody's got to get the, the, the uh, pin in their arm twice. Yeah. It's a two-dose vaccine. So 6 million doses, 3 million people inoculated. It's going to probably be distributed by and large per capita across the country. And so that means, uh, you know, Ontario's not, you know, Ontario will get as much as its population deserves, but it's probably only going to be, you know, people who are over 80 are going to be first in line. The, the long-term care facility residents and the healthcare workers in LTCs will be at the front of the line, and then we'll sort of go down. The big question is, and this is what Trudeau's going to get hammered on, when are the vaccinations starting? We can't get a straight answer out of the government on a specific week, let alone a specific month. The best they'll say is sometime in the first quarter of 2021. And as Doug Ford has said, this is a really important question because is, are all the doses or all those, you know, six million doses coming on week one in January? Are we getting maybe 20,000 in week one in January? Are the first doses coming in February? And, and the, the, the provinces have not been given this information. We can't get an answer from the Trudeau government who are you know, constantly just sort of saying, you know, we'll have it. We, we don't want to sell you a bill of goods. But again, it's, it's, it's just not a, a political question for, as they say, the provinces. They have to know where and when and what facilities and people are going to be able to administer this thing, possibly starting in the first week in January. Obviously, if you can't give a straight answer, you don't know that information. But why do they just not come out and, and, and say that? There seems to be a lot of questions. And the only thing we really know is that, as you mentioned, those 6 million uh, shots, 3 million uh, vaccinations will be here sometime between uh, January and March. So is that the most we can expect? Is that the least that we can expect and 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 i understand that the government doesn't have these questions or sorry answers to these questions but why do they not better explain the process to at least give us some sort of relief to to know when or or what they're waiting for in order to make that to give us that answer yeah and so the 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 entire parliamentary press gallery including yours truly and there's you know 300 reporters who are basically here from you know news outlets across the country have been putting exactly those questions in every possible way we can figure out how to ask them yeah. for two weeks now. And we, we don't have the answers. And, you know, the, the government, 
The government will say is, don't worry, you're getting it. They must have the answers. You started talking off about this procurement authority. And by the way, it's for contracts worth up to $500 million with no competitive bid. And it's unlimited contracting authority with no oversight for any vaccine procurement. And all of this comes to Oakville MP, Anita Anon. She's, you know, she got elected in 2019 for the first time politician. She's formerly a law professor at U of T specializing in corporate law. She says she knows how to do contracts. Okay, fine. But those contracts and the details have not been put to, in, to, uh, in front of Parliament. And those contracts would have very specific details saying, presumably, within, I don't know, two weeks of approval by Health Canada, you will ship, you know, one million doses of X to, you know, Vancouver and one million to Toronto and, and so on. You would think. Now, Canada has probably, in those contracts, we believe, talking to folks who know about this sort of stuff, um, we believe that Pfizer would also want to know that Canada is capable of taking its vaccine and has the freezers and has the, the, the ability to administer it. In other words, we have to do our due diligence and demonstrate to the seller, Pfizer, that we're not just going to let this, you know, take a million doses and, you know, they'll all rot. Um, and so, again, coming back to Anita and Nan's role, yes, they're out there right now buying the freezers, hundreds of freezers, figuring where to ship them around the country. But again, it just goes to, you know, it's an emergency. The government said it's an emergency. So we're going to have these special powers to do, you know, buying up stuff, whether it's masks or vaccines. And a lot of that information is not going before Parliament, going before Canadians. And so we have these questions. And we just have to take it on faith that the government says sometime in the first three months of the new year. And again, that's in contrast to the United States, which has said, you know, within two days of the FDA approving things, people will getting, be getting jabs in their arms in the United yeah. States. Britain has said already it's going to happen, what, next week in the U.K. So we're looking, at, and I guarantee you, this is going to be topic number one in question period at 2.15. And as you mentioned, we just don't know what the deal is. We don't know anything about the contracts. And as you said, uh, how many days after this, that, or the other. Do you think this is a case of them under-promising and then we'll over-deliver in the end and save the day? I always think it's a wise thing for a politician to do in any event, um, and, uh, you know, m- maybe it is. I-, I get the sense, we're trying to read between the lines, again, when we've asked these questions at various press conferences, is, uh, you know, that that is one of the reasons they feel they're being so cautious, is, uh, for one thing, there is no approved vaccine. And, you know, the odds are good, given that the U.K., uh, which has a similar regulatory environment than we do, has approved it, um, and the FDA looks like it's on track, the odds are Health Canada will approve it. But, you know, here's a point where, you know, let's talk about airplanes, that Boeing 777 MAX. Yeah, you can fly it in the States, but Transport Canada has said, uh-uh, no way, doesn't meet our safety approvals. So there are sometimes differences between the way the Canadian government says, you know, product A is safe and what others say. So we'll see. And, and maybe that's one of the reasons for their hes- the, the government's hesitancy on the vaccine delivery date is saying we haven't yet approved this thing. And, you know, it may. Is that not, David, though, is that not a, is that not a scapegoat for them? Because we all know that the, it won't be the approval. Pro- if this gets held up, it will not be the approval process that holds it up. It'll be we don't have the product. Well, actually, I don't it, it won't be the process in any event. It'll be sorry, we don't think this is safe. You got to go do more trials. I mean, that's, that's really at the end of the day, the process, Health Canada is already locked into the process. So that's not going to be an issue. The issue would be Health Canada's looked at the data 
and said, we don't think this is safe or we don't think this is effective. I mean, we do know that, you know, there's some rapid tests, for example, rapid test kits that have been approved for use in other jurisdictions and Health Canada has said, these rapid test kits don't work. They give too many false positives. And as a result, they're kind of useless. We're not going to put rapid tests into long-term care homes until we know that they actually produce a positive test when somebody's actual positive. So, so that's a, an example where Health Canada has taken a slightly different view on some of the technologies on, say, on rapid testing. So I'm just, I'm just putting that out there. Right. Maybe that it is, and that's why they're saying, you know, hold on, don't count your chickens before they're hatched. My sense is, though, the day they approve, I don't know, I, I, I'm speculating because, again, I don't know, but yeah. if Health Canada approves on December the 12th, you know, my sense would be if the government of Canada doesn't come out then on December the 13th and say, right, we've got approval, the jets with the stuff is on the way. And okay, so, David, why would, they, why would they just not come out and say that? Why would they not just say, okay, here's the timeline. It looks like now if something happens and it goes wrong, we'll obviously adjust this, but it looks like we are going to get approval with the rest of the world at roughly yeah. the same time. And then if that happens here, then here's what happens with, with the distribution. Why don't they even give us that? Right. I, 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 I'm completely confused why. You could certainly say... Under the terms of the contract, we're guaranteed so many doses within two weeks of approval. And then mm-hmm. you still can have a, a floating approval date. It's, it's, it's very difficult to say. The other thing we've been told is uh, this, this drug, by the way, Pfizer, that Pfizer makes, it's made in Michigan. That's where the plant is for this thing. And already some doses are being, quote, pre-positioned by the United States government. We saw that uh, just a couple of days ago, plane loads of, um, uh, of, 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 of these vaccines were coming out of the plant in Michigan going across the country. And that's, that's a whole other story because they had to change FAA rules because of this deep freeze and they've got to use so much dry ice to keep this. You're only allowed so much dry ice on an airplane. Like we're learning all sorts of stuff we never knew. You're only allowed so much dry ice on an airplane out of concerns on safety. So, uh, you know, now we're going to get the federal Canadian aviation regulators involved to allow can we have planes flying around the country with more dry ice on board than they're normally allowed? There's also, as I said, there's all sorts of things to figure out. But you, again, you, you, I agree with you. You keep coming back to we're figuring them out, and as soon as we do, we'll have doses, you know, within X number of days in, you know, uh, long-term care facilities in Ontario, BC, Alberta, or whatever. Yeah, it just appears we, we, we don't know what the plan is, and that's that's creating the anxiety uh, across the country. All right, uh, David Aiken has been with us, and the column is Coronavirus, New Records, Detail, Ottawa's Bold, Aggressive Strategy to Buy Vaccines and PPE. It is on Global's website right now. David Aiken with us. David, thanks for the time, as always. Uh, be well. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, guys. Cheers. All right. It's been a couple of years, two years ago yesterday, that the Huawei CFO was arrested uh, on a cafe or getting off of a cafe Pacific flight from Hong Kong uh, in Vancouver. We all certainly know what has happened since then. Nineties, nine days later, the two Michaels taken off the streets of China and uh, have been in uh, in jail, I guess, in prison uh, ever since all of this. Let's bring in Charles Burton. Uh, Charles Burton and Associates Partner, Senior Fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute, and talk about this. Uh, and another fascinating, interesting article that's coming from our very own Sam Cooper. You can see this on the Global News site. Chinese vaccine company executives worked in program now targeted by Western intelligence agencies. Uh, and again, to talk more of all the, uh, about all of this, Charles Burton is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good afternoon, Scott. Beautiful sunny day down here in St. Catharines. 
Yeah, it's a nice day finally after yesterday. So let's start first with the vaccines. Uh, and we had heard uh, uh, lots of chatter uh, dating back to, to August about this CanSino deal with China and such. Now uh, our investigative reporter, uh, Sam Cooper out west, has an interesting article today on the website. Chinese vaccination company executives worked in program now targeted uh, by Western uh, agencies. Uh, the Chinese company involved uh, in a failed COVID-19 vaccination collaboration with Canada, the article says, were also part of a Chinese government program designed to incentivize people to transfer research and knowledge to China in exchange for salaries, funding, and other benefits. What are your What are your thoughts about uh, the deal that the government was working on with China and these allegations here? Well, I think you're looking at two different things, uh, both of them terrible. Uh, you know, certainly we hear that the uh, CanSino vaccine will be uh, distributed in Mexico soon because they did the uh, the trials there in Mexico. Uh, as we know, the, for reasons unexplained, this this vaccine was developed by uh, the Canadian government uh, in collaboration with the Chinese People's Liberation Army um, Medical Research Unit. And then when it came time for the trials to happen in Canada, the Chinese uh, refused to send the stuff here. And the whole collaboration between uh, China and Canada on producing a vaccine collapsed. So, you know, that's one aspect of it. Um, what went on there, we're not sure, but I assume that it's about simply Chinese spiteful retaliation over our um, holding of the Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou. The other one is really relating to this uh, Chinese Thousand Talents program. And uh, as Sam's article points out, it seems that the National Research Council has had a lot of dealings with doubtful uh, Chinese partners who seem uh, bent on purloining Canadian data and um, and classified uh, research. You know, we had problems with the National Research Council uh, aerospace research being purloined by China. This particular program involves um, the Chinese government providing incentives for people in Canada who are researching in sensitive areas uh, with potential dual-use technologies, in other words, civil and military technologies, being inveigled to go to China um, often being paid very generously, uh, sometimes on the sly. Uh, you know, they don't they don't admit to their employer that they're also their Canadian employer that they're also pulling in a full time salary from China. And gradually over time, you see um, classified and sensitive technologies being transferred to the Chinese state without them uh, participating in the funding of them or paying licensing fees. So this Thousand Talents program is really uh, about the Chinese government identifying around the world foreign scholars who are working in areas that fit into their five-year planning process and their and their um, industrial military development plans and getting that information transferred to China, um, you know, through covert, corrupt, or coercive means. And it seems that uh, Can Sino, um, the executives there, are alleged to be involved in, in such a scheme as is meticulously detailed by... Sam Cooper, who I think is, uh, you know, performing yeoman service mm. for Canada by by um, exposing this sort of stuff and giving our government an inducement to start doing something about Chinese espionage and improper transfer of classified technologies, um, because you know that we lose billions, literally billions of dollars a year uh, due to this kind of uh, activity. 
How's the collapse of the CanSino deal due to China's uh, not allowing it to come here? Has this delayed COVID-19 vaccinations in, uh, in Canada, in your opinion? Yes, I think so, because uh, they'll be starting up in Mexico very soon. And uh, as we know, they won't be starting up in Canada that soon. But that being said, um, you know, the, the word is that the, the Pfizer and Moderna um, vaccines are more effective because they use a more advanced uh, biotechnology than the more conventional CanSino vaccine, which may have effectiveness, you know, down there in the in the 70s, as opposed to over 90% effectiveness in the other one. And the CanSino vaccine, so we hear, is not as good uh, for the elderly. So, you know, it's one of those six of one, half dozen, the other things. But there's no question that that we were messed around by the Chinese authorities on this, and uh, and uh, you know, we really uh, that. that that matter should be made more transparent by the Canadian government, and we ought to be responding commensurately. So far, uh, the government hasn't been fully forthcoming about what went wrong. Should we be signing these types of deals with China? I mean, you know, we sent them tons of PPE at the beginning of all of this. Uh, we know that this disease originated in China due to their inability to keep their food chain free of contamination. Now we're depending on them uh, or were for a for vaccination. Should we be doing these deals? I mean, is this the direction we should be looking in, especially uh, when we're going to be talking about men, uh, the, the Huawei CFO here and two year anniversary of her of her uh, arrest here? Are these the deals we should be doing? Well, you're right, Scott. I mean, there are two aspects to it. One is the moral aspect. You know, do we want to be engaging in promoting profitability for a regime that engages in uh, genocidal practices against the Muslims in in the northwestern part of China and, you know, violates the terms of guaranteeing the human rights of people living in Hong Kong, including 300,000 Canadians or, you know, all sorts of various violations of international law, expansion of South China Sea? That's the moral aspect. The other aspect is that clearly Chinese state firms are not reliable partners. You know, they violated our our, um, canola seed contracts for political reasons, resulting in $3 billion worth of losses to our farmers. Um, Huawei, you know, provides capability for a state to engage in cyber espionage. It's cheaper than than the, the rivals because of Chinese state subsidies. But do we really want to to be uh, entrusting our telecommunications to um, companies that are beholden to uh, a state, China, which doesn't play by the international rules of fairness and reciprocity, which underlies the international rules-based order. So, you know, I I think it was a big mistake for us to have um, uh, done this deal with CanSino, and, and, uh, and, you know, the result is, is the result we got. We have no vaccine. Uh, obviously, yesterday, the two-year anniversary of the arrest of the Huawei CFO in a Vancouver airport. Is there any significance to this date other than it is two years and uh, minus eight days now that the, in two years that the two Michaels were captured? Well, I think that it really shows the failure of our justice system to provide timely justice. You know, really, um, we, uh, you know, the extradition hearing process being uh, overseen by the B.C. Superior Court is not about whether Meng Wanzhou is uh, innocent or guilty of the serious charges of fraud that have been leveled against her, but simply whether the U.S. extradition request is valid in terms of the treaty, so uh, the extradition treaty between Canada and the United States. 
So why is it taking two years to make this determination? You know, surely there must be some way to speed things up and either determine that, you know, Ms. Mung is not eligible for extradition, unlikely but possible, or determine that she fulfills the terms of the extradition treaty and get her out of Canada and over to New York State where she can defend herself against these charges, uh, you know, in a, in a country that provides due process of law that we're sufficiently confident in that we, we have an extradition agreement with them. Uh, I know this isn't your forte, but on the vaccination front, your thoughts on how this is all panned out and where we are? Well, you know, I think that uh, certainly our reliance on China, as I said, was a mistake. I think the fact that we don't have the capability to manufacture these things in Canada is also unfortunate and should be a priority for our government to get us that capability because, you know, if it's not... Uh, a new form of SARS this year. It may well be something um, equally serious in years ahead. And other countries are going to be getting their, their citizens vaccinated well ahead of us. And that doesn't put our government in a good light. Charles Burton has been with his partner, Charles Burton and Associates, Senior Fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute. Charles, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Great to speak with you. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.